Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today is the 32nd episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into a life journey that's likely quite different than yours. We'll discuss ways we can level the playing field and help everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, learn, struggle, work, and live in our world. My beloved mentor, Francis Hesselbein, passed away on December 11th, 2022 at age 107. Her life motto was to serve is to live, which she did with grace her entire life. And my guest today embodies serving others. Too humble to say this himself, I must introduce him as a hero. As Navy SEAL commander, he led special forces missions in the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, and other international hotspots. Among many other feats, his team is widely credited propelling the tribal awakening that helped to neutralize Iraq's insurgency. He's run every phase of SEAL training, including sniper operations, direct assaults, special reconnaissance, and ground patrols. Aside from his decorated career with the SEALs, he starred in the hit movie Act of Valor, authored two books, Worth Dying For, and New York Times bestseller, Damn Few, Making the Modern SEAL Warrior, and is a highly sought-after speaker who helps organizations and people live and perform at higher levels. I am honored for listeners to meet my amazing friend, Navy SEAL Commander Rourke Denver. Rourke, welcome to Our Voices. Howdy, Molly. Excited to finally do it. Yeah, I am so jazzed, and I was blown away when I heard you speak and what I learned in a very short time. I went on a tear. I tell you, I watched your movie. I read all the books. I am not yep. a fast reader, okay? No, thank and, you. And, um, and wow, they really opened my eyes to a world I know very little about. The depth of your lived experience, I know, will help listeners be better, work, and live better. So I'm, I'm beyond grateful you're joining us. Um, Work being in physical combat and danger in the name of our country is already amazing. To be a Navy SEAL commander who led hundreds of crucial missions is simply awe-inspiring. Um, to start, though, I'm really excited for listeners to hear the before. So what was yeah, going yeah. up like for you before yeah, serving? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I felt like I hit the lottery, uh, both in parents and kind of environment for, um, for growth to kind of really do whatever I want to do. I grew up in the Bay Area, California. Um, this was, you know, pre the true tech boom, all that stuff was certainly simmering as I was young, but you didn't know that was happening, I guess, unless, you know, your dad was in that industry. And so, you know, it was apricot orchards and, you know, running around and riding bikes and getting adventures. And, and uh, you know, my dad's a big outdoorsman, fisherman. And, and so, you know, we did a lot of things, both he and I've got a younger brother, three years that were thick as thick as thieves and have been, you know, close since uh, the day he came into the world and, and joined me on the adventure. And um, so it was just a, it was a great place to grow up. There's a lot of intellectual horsepower, a lot of artistic horsepower with, you know, San Francisco uh, being right there. 
Uh, I think you had a real sense of, you know, in some ways your place, the world, that there was exciting things happening all around you and that there was, I think, expectation as well, both in, you know, my parents and then the parents, you know, that kind of surrounded you. you, know, if, you if you kind of think in terms of it takes a village, we had a pretty, you know, high impact, high power village. I mean, it was sort of expected you'd go on to do, uh, you know, do something and, and not be not be dig digging ditches somewhere. Although one of my best friends started digging ditches and now owns one of the largest construction companies in Northern California. So that worked out pretty well. But um, but no, it was it, it was a, it was a great place to grow up. I, I really wrestled with um, my scholastic life, I, I, I did not enjoy the fall, four walls of a classroom, but I loved to learn and I, I was always very intellectually curious. I, I was blessed to have two really by, by any standard brilliant, brilliant parents. My, my dad's an attorney and, you know, 35 year gunslinger in the trial room and now does media. Art. I mean, he's, you know, turning 80 soon and still practices law, teaches trial law at symposiums at Stanford and just you know, as well read a person as I've ever met and can access all that information, which is the gift I wish he'd passed on more to me with when he is there. Um, but very disciplined, very focused, very, you know, rigid in the sense of, of ma maintaining hard work and effort and drive and, and, and really doing the right thing. He's just an honorable person for sure. And then my mom is, is, kind of the wild one. She's very much an artist. Uh, she actually is a, an exceptional artist, whether it's paint, photography, uh, stained glass, I mean, she could do all that, but she, you know, kind of was a little bit of a, you know, vagabond and, you know, run around to different jobs and coming up with new adventures and always maxing out credit cards to, you know, take us to do good things when she didn't have the money and, and um, really kind of ignited a dreamer part of, I think, both myself and my brother. So when you pair, you know, discipline, focus and drive with dream and you can do anything. Uh, it's a pretty good, you know, alchemy or cocktail of, I, I think, basic stuff to go do well in the world. Um, sports was really the place I found my footing. So I, I, I was an athlete um, my entire life. And I can't remember not playing sports. And, and it was just a place where I found immediate uh, success and comfort and passion. And I, I just loved it. I loved the competition. I loved um, I actually just until recently have never realized how much I enjoyed um, the fact that there's a rule set and that there's organization to a sport, but then you push the limits of your creativity and ability with inside that rule set. I really kind of like that, you know, construct for the way um, I've lived my life, but I played every, you know, every sport, every kid plays growing up, baseball, basketball, football, all the, all the soccer, the you know kind of standards. And then when I got to high school, I, I ended up playing water polo, which is a huge um, sport out west and thought I was going to stay in California and play water polo at the collegiate level and certainly had that opportunity. And then my, my parents both grew up in the east. My dad's a Brooklyn kid. My mom grew up in upstate New York or central New York in Syracuse. And they both went to Syracuse, as did my grandfather. Syracuse, one of their top sports historically is lacrosse. And I'd always wanted to play the game. We just didn't have a team at my high school or many of the high schools around me. And a, a kid moved uh, my sophomore year of high school from the East to California and started a club team. There were more teams playing at the private level that we didn't realize. And um, I just picked that game up really quick. And uh, two years later, I went back to a camp at Syracuse. And all of a sudden, I got recruited by, you know, certainly arguably or in the conversation for the best program in the country. And um, as much as wanting to play for my, you know, my family's kind of alma mater and it being an elite program, the coach there 
was uh, you know, just one of the all-time greats, a real legend. Like you think of Coach K and and you know some of the the great coaches that everybody knows you know throughout sport. Um, he was that legend within the the collegiate level of lacrosse, and really he was an artist and a, a speaker and a motivator and a thinker. And um, I just really connected with him, and then had an amazing four years there. So when I was in my senior year, I'm I'm a captain. We'd won a couple national championships already at Syracuse, and I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do next. I was a fine arts major, which is obviously the path to special operations and elite military units, and. Um, yeah, I just, I just, I really didn't know where I wanted to go, but I, I love to read. My dad, brother, and I are always sharing books back and forth. And my dad sent me a copy of Winston Churchill's My Early Life, which is an autobiography that great British statesman um, wrote much later in his life. Something about that book, this idea of service and kind of earning your spot at the table really connected for me. And so then I knew I want to go in the military. I want to be an officer, and I, I, I made that decision and then did a bunch of research about the different, you know, elite units that I become a part of. There's very little about the Navy SEAL teams at that point, you know, anywhere to find. But I saw lo- some little statistic that it had the highest attrition rate, that 80% of the people that show up don't make it, and that sounded like the right spot for me, and the rest, as they say, is history. So I, I really landed in a good spot. But I, I had an incredible childhood with probably the right amount of uh, – of hardship and, and suffering and a whole lot of love and energy poured into myself and my brother. Yeah. I'm just want to bottle it up. That just sounds like absolute perfection. And I am curious, did your father in giving you the book expect such a response from you? Oh, I, I read that book in about three days and I called him as soon as I put it down. I said, I'm going into the military. He was very, I think, I don't think he thought that'd be the result. I don't think he was surprised by the direction or the potential path. So I, it wasn't something we discussed, but I think, uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a thinker and I, I like considering what I'm doing, what I say, how I'm going to impact, uh, you know, somebody when I talk to them or any, anything I do really. And so he, he knows I don't shoot from the hip and I, I'd already, by the time I called him, started to do some research and was looking at it. So I think it surprised him, but I don't think, you know, it was a shocking departure or he was unhappy about it. Yeah. So I want to do a shout out for the folks out there who don't consider themselves kind of book academicies, but this, I just want to just call out this great quest for learning and you're finding ways to learn four walls. Wasn't, you know, the perfect place for you, but just, you know, really embracing how you reach out, read and just soak it up in ways that work for work, you know, and I, and I want to encourage that because I think sometimes the learning systems aren't as flexible perhaps to nurture the intellectual curiosity in our youth yes. and just you yes. know, applaud how you went, out, went after that. So I, I am. And, and, and to echo that, I'd, I'd say the same thing is that I think people run into walls in, in a certain discipline and it shuts them down to all the others. And that, that's the real mistake. Like I have a learning disability in math, in, in sequencing. So numbers or like card games, I don't like playing. I don't like it. If it takes you know, kind of the sequencing or use of numbers. I have a really hard time with that. And, and so that really hurt me academically as far as, you know, both high school and then even getting into college. By the time I got to college, I actually had been, you know, had found the diagnoses for you do actually have an issue. This would make math extremely hard. Well, consequently, I dove into literature. And I mean, so what a world opened up to me because of a shortcoming. And so I think I think people really need to concentrate on that when you have when you have a weakness, it doesn't have to, you know, restrain you from the other things you could develop as strengths. 
Yeah, for sure. So I do want to say though, as a young person, it can, you know, you can kind of start, well, you're not good at math and it can create a self-talk downward spiral. How do you think you didn't let that affect, or maybe did affect you and you had to overcome it? Probably a little bit of the latter, but I don't think I ever had negative self-talk in my life. And I don't know if that's my mom and dad or, you know, genetics or the, you know, nurture or nature that seems to hit that. I actually, we'll probably talk about this later when it comes to SEAL training and that stuff. I've, I've just always had a voice that has been an ally. It's just, Hey, I can do it. Let's keep grinding. Let's keep fighting. Let's keep trying. Um, you know, failure is not an option, even though I've failed certainly more than, uh, more than, more than I'd, I'd like to admit. Although since that's where the lessons are, it's probably the best thing for you. Um, but no, my voice was always real strong. Um, I, I think it was literally navigating the kind of technical side of, okay, how do I get through this class, this segment of science, this block of, even in the SEAL teams, there's there's a good amount of math we need to do for calculating, you know, explosive charts or, or time views when you're going to blow up a charge or or distance for, you know, ranging and shooting things. And I, I had to find workarounds and I, I did, but I, I, I had to work hard to do that. Yeah. I love what you said. How you always had a voice, an internal voice that was an ally. And this is, I've yeah. said this on the, the, on the show uh, listeners being your own best friend, right? Why be your worst enemy? Be your best friend. 100%. Yeah. Life will be tough enough on you on, on its own. You don't, need, you don't need to help. For sure. So I, um, I know some young people who have gone into the military and it's not easy to kind of have your expectations set. So we'll just take us through a young man, like on fire. And, you know, I, I can't, I, I must imagine there must've been some things that were really surprising, or maybe you really did enough research and you knew exactly what you were getting into. No, I think, um, truth be told, and it's, I don't know if it was the research or just that I chose, I bet it was more the, I chose the right path. I felt like from the day I started until the day I finished, I I picked the right path, which is quite a gift. And I don't think I shaped that, um, particularly hard in my mind. I mean, when I showed up at SEAL training in particular, I had to go to officer school first, which compared to SEAL training is unbelievably easy. You know, it's, it's kind of learning to stand straight and march and, you know, manners and customs and naval history and, um, you know, basic leadership stuff, but it's also, you know, folding underwear and knowing how to put a uniform together. It's the, it's the, the real simple stuff. But when you show up at your first, you know, especially school, so a jet pilot is going to flight school and, you know, submarine driver is going to learn how to run nuclear systems and drive, drive a boat underwater, uh, seals at seal training out in San Diego, I really, the second I walked through the door of that place, I, I, I was excited, you know, the entire drive to the front gate. And when I walked through that front gate, I felt like I was home. I, I felt like I'd found a peer group that um, really, really was my peer group, that, that I was in the right place. And I, I like, you know, when it came to sports, you know, most people don't like preseason because that's when you're running you know, liners or the, you know, back and forth drills where people are throwing up because they're going so hard and their coach is pushing them to get in shape. That was my favorite time, to be honest. I really like the kind of building and the and the suffering and the hard stuff. So if you like suffering, show up at SEAL training, you definitely found the right place. Oh my gosh. So we're, I mean, because I read the book, I was just sort of like exhausted reading. And <laughs> I, I think you should just help because I mean, the number of the, just the, just the pure physicality part of it. So, I mean, how, did you ever think it was like s- too hard? I mean, really, you just, how do you, how did you, how did you get think, yourself through it? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, the the the, the last part of the question, how to get myself through it. I, I never, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of books and a lot of quotes from SEALs that kind of say, you know, everybody thinks about quitting at some point and then, you know, has to work through that and come to a conclusion. Most of my best teammates, when I've had that conversation with them, that 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 is not the case. I, I think my class, for instance, started with about 180 you know, hopeful candidates. And we graduated 22, six months later, 180 down to 22. And I, I am very convinced that on that graduation, on that Friday, when we graduated out of those 22 young lions that saw the finish line, 21 of us, because I was one of them, knew we were going to be there. Maybe one of them was like, holy shit, I made it. You, you know, but I mean, I think for the most part, like everybody that makes it, actually the reason they make it is because they knew they were going to make it. They, they didn't come to try they came to become a member of that team and pay the toll or pay the tax um, that it takes to get through there. Now, now to answer your question, the number of sit-ups, pull-ups, push-ups, running in the sand, swims, obstacle courses, underwater, you know, insanity, uh, instructors just, you know, beating the ever-living life out of you and more with, you know, the use of push-ups, sit-ups, burpees, rolling through the sand, you know, carrying a buddy up over a hill, all that kind of stuff. It is otherworldly. And, and and frankly, it's actually beyond any one individual's ability to do it. And, and what I mean by that is at some point, you, your body will fail and everyone's does at some point or has an off day or a rough day. What you need to maintain is this kind of long range focus, but very, you know, right in front of your face drive to get through, you know, the, the thing you're dealing with right in front of you, the right now, whether that's you know, not tying underwater or learning a skill or hell week or whatever it is. And, and still kind of seeing that, 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 you, you know, golden door, that, that brass ring at the end that you're hoping to grab and become a part of. And I, I just didn't have a hard time with it. As, as I said, I, I, I love being around the people I was around. Uh, you know, as people quit, you kind of, it, it's weird. You don't do it in a callous way, but if you quit steel training, you got to go ring this bell three times. It's called ringing out. You drop, uh, drop on request. You say, I want to quit. It's a volunteer program. Nobody, we don't have to actually drop that many people from training. Most people just say, I've never been this cold, wet, and miserable in my life. You guys are crazy. I'm out of here. And they got to go ring this bell. And that bell sort of becomes the soundtrack of SEAL training. And early on, that bell is ringing like nonstop because so many people are quitting early because they just realize they bit off more they could chew or they weren't in the right place. As you go through the program, when that bell rang, rings, for those that make it, it's almost like, yeah, that's right. I'm still here. I'm not the one pulling on that bell right now. Somebody else is. This was for me. It, it turns into this reversal of almost a motivator as opposed to a negative. And so it, it, it's the whole program, really, because everybody that shows up there is fit. That, that's just true. You have to be fit just to get through the screen test. It's all from the neck up. It's from the neck up or what's sitting in your chest. If you have the heart and the mind to do it, there's nothing they can do to stop you. And if you and if you don't, it, they'll stop you for sure. But you're really stopping yourself. From the neck up and what's in your chest. I love that. I'm writing that down. That's so fabulous. So, um, you know, I, so you've had a lot of team sports, your purpose built for this. What were some of the self-learnings as you got through this? If, I mean, if any, if you're just, you just knew this was kind of you, I'm, I'm wondering what, if you yeah, surprised there, yourself. There were a lot of real elemental lessons that come out of SEAL training that I think in some ways I almost think we could probably be better about teaching the specifics, but I think in general people get it whether they know they're getting it or not. Like, I, I mean, I, I recognize early on in training you are going to be physically and kind of mentally suffering for a long period of time. And I found that 
particularly as an officer, if I thought of my teammates, if I thought of my swim buddy, my boat crew, my whole class, if I thought of how I could help them or ameliorate their, you know, their suffering or, or be a better teammate to help them, I didn't have time to think of my own. So while, while I, I, I said I enjoyed it, there are days that are so hard you can't believe it. And if you sat there and I think had a little bit of a pity party or were you know, doing some woe is me and thinking about how much it hurts, it's probably going to hurt more. If I'd sit there and say, hey, you know, my buddy Mikey or Tim, they need a hand, they need a help, their legs hurt and let me carry a little extra weight or do a little extra push here. I didn't have time to really think of my own discomfort. And that, that proved true for the rest, the rest, certainly the rest of my career and the rest of my life, that if I focused on my team and focused on their needs and what I could do to support, help build and facilitate for them, um, kind of the rest of it would take care of itself. Oh my God, that is totally awesome learning. Um, the, the transition. So there's a lot of you, you're practicing. And then at some point you, it goes live and, um, you are shipped off and I'm just wondering emotionally what that's like. And, you know, I, I, you know, I know that it takes a huge village of family support, um, for folks like you. So I'm, I'm curious about that. I'm emotional dynamic, you know, and, um, it's very real. Yeah, it takes, you know, it takes from about the day you start SEAL training till you get to your actual SEAL team. So a functional, you know, operational team, it's about a year. So you got a lot of time of working up and learning the skill sets. And then even when you get to the team, when I went through, you're on probation for a while. They really want to make sure you're the right, you know, the right person for that team personality and kind of skill set. And Once you get all through that, then you're actually put into an operational unit, an assault team or a platoon, as we call them. And then you're getting ready to deploy. I, I had the, I think, or I look back at it, the real gift of being able to deploy pre 9-11 and do the deployments that were kind of the post-Vietnam era, pre 9-11, where you were, um, you know, really learning overseas, working with host nations, teaching them their skills and doing exchange of information and kind of being present in case something went wrong. But nothing, frankly, was going wrong at that point, um, besides a couple, you know, Panama, uh, Grenada, Bosnia, small little incursions and experiences. Very few people were getting in gunfights fights at that point. And then so I had those deployments, which were great for learning and kind of building the skill set. And then that 9-11 unfolds very early, you know, two and a half years into my career. And little did we know for the next two decades, we'd be in the fight and chasing bad guys. And so to answer your question, the emotional side of it, um, it's probably two pretty distinct parts. I guess I'll start with family first. The the family uh, are the real story. I mean, somebody, maybe I can uh, take up the mantle at some point, will tell a story about, you know, families in the military and, and how they really are the magic and that support and what they, you know, throw on their back and suffer. I mean, I, I can't imagine what this was like for my mom or, or my, I mean, my dad, I, I almost was more worried about my dad's dad was killed the Pacific theater of world war two. Um, so he never met his dad. He, he was born and his dad was a B 24 liberator guy. And very few of those planes made it back. And so his dad was killed in the Pacific theater. And so in my mind, I was, I was actually worried if I fell in combat, like, man, my dad's life has to be bookended by losing a dad and losing a son. That would be brutal. So my, my, my mindset was actually like, do everything in your power to get this thing done right, and get home safe. So you don't have to throw that at your family. But um, no, I, 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 in hindsight, I think my desire for adventure and leadership and, um, you know, kind of going to that extreme of human experience. I, I, I don't know if I knew at the time how much I was asking of my family. And then I met my bride 
real early in my experience, you know, two, two years in really. And then, so she was with me for all my combat deployments and all that time, uh, just otherworldly levels of support and, and, you know, I'm sure worry and, uh, also, you know, the pride, integrity and the, the you know, I, I think kind of family dynamic of that experience. So it's, it's intense. It's, it's, it's a very big ask to, um, uh, to, to walk this path and recognize that, that others, you know, particularly seeing teammates fall, you know, that their family bears the weight of, of those choices. Um, my emotional preparation for war was, uh, I just think through years of reading and thinking and philosophy and faith mixed in and, and also just a belief that, um, you know, somebody, somebody's going to go do this job. And I feel like I'm as competitive, capable and able as anybody. And frankly, wanted to see what was behind that curtain. I wanted to turn over that stone of, of kind of intense human inter interaction, which um, I don't think came from bloodlust, but I think it, it, there is something in competitive, um, humans, whether that's male or female, I think males live on the far, some of us live on the far extreme of, you know, aggressive competitiveness. And that, that, that was always kind of my way. I like to fight and, and, and I never liked to fight to fight. I fighted to, you know, fight a bully or protect someone that couldn't protect themselves. So that kind of ethos was something that lived and probably still lives inside me. And I take very seriously. And so being able to do that at the national level was, 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 uh, quite, quite intense and also very humbling and, and uh, uh, a lot of pride came out of being able to do that. Yeah. I, I um, you know, I, I appreciate the stereotype potentially of people thinking of brash seal, you know, behavior. Yeah. And I think that when I read your books, I mean, just, yes, there's a physicality for sure. I got it. The, just the intentionality, the, the deep thinking, the, so, I mean, that's one of the things that's just so overwhelming about you. You're such a family man. I mean, that integration of it. And, you know, that's why I think as a leadership, in the leadership realm, all that you learned and what you're translating um, to companies now, I think it's really important for, for people just to appreciate that wholeness. Yes. Right? And um, I don't know. I don't know if that's frustrating for you ever, if people think of it as maybe a little more, you know, physical they miss kind of the I, I think I, I don't think anyone recognizes how well I, not not anyone. I think I think as you said, there's a large portion of people that probably think of our guys as machines and terminators and you know, bloodthirsty and, and omni focused on the job. And we can certainly transition into that when it's required. I met very few or served with very few people that weren't thoughtful, weren't aware of what they were doing, weren't aware of the weight of uh of the decisions that you had to make. And if you made that ultimate decision, um, you better do it right. That once you pull that trigger, the bullet's not coming back. And so, yeah, it, it, I, I, I served with very few people that were, um, that were robotic. Yeah. So I know that you have, you know, I kind of call this the good, the bad, and the ugly. I can't I just imagine amazing teamwork, amazing mission stories, any, a few that you could just share with us to help illustrate, you know, the good times and the tough times. Yeah, I mean, it, it's they, they all had a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think even the missions that went exceedingly well, you're still doing a very harsh job. I mean, they don't call SEALs or special operations forces to go do medical clinics or toy drives or things like that. We're going to hunt um, the top of the stack of the bad guys. So most of our engagement and most of our purpose is to really, you know, go slay dragons. And so when you're doing that, um, there's always tremendous risk. There's always... 
you know, cost benefit kind of analysis that you're running through your mind of, of, you know, is, is the mission going to get completed to standard? Is it going to be done in a way that we, you know, do so with, you know, purpose and, and a high standard and also, you know, get our hands dirty and do the job. And I always felt really good comfort with that. And, and it's probably subject to the excellence of the people I got to spend my time with. I mean, the, the talent level and the mindset of the folks I spent time with is, is almost hard to capture. I mean, you know, I love language. It's, it's almost hard to put into words. I mean, I, one of the hardest questions I get in the corporate space is somebody will inevitably every, every other, if not every event, ask me how to motivate you know, their teammates. I'm, I'm not sure how to answer the question. I come up with something, but I'm like, I never had to motivate anyone. I mean, I, I, I usually was pulling the reins back, not cracking the whip. That's how aggressive and capable the team I was on was. And so um, the, the missions that really stand out, um, you know, are, are, are the extremes, of course. I mean, I, I remember there was a, a sniper, a, a, an enemy sniper kind of cell a group of snipers that were attacking a Marine unit, the province we were in in 2006, and they killed several Marines we knew well and, and you know, just great humans and, and um, you know, really tough to watch. And we dismantled that cell. I mean, over about a month-long period, um, every one of those snipers was either killed or captured on the battlefield. And, and it just utterly changed the dynamic of that place because they, they, they were the kind of psychological threat uh, as well as being physical snipers can rain wreak havoc on, you know, a disciplined unit because you don't know when you're going to get hit, who's going to get hit. And so removing them from the battlefield, that group was, uh, yeah, you really just had a team of people look at you like saying thank you. And, and you felt like you really, you know, did your job well. And so that, that stands out certainly. And there's a bunch of missions within that that would take too long to describe. And then the, you know, the missions where it went bad or something went wrong. I mean, I, I remember a mission, this is a teaching point I use sometime. I'll truncate it so it doesn't take the whole time. But I remember midway through one of our deployments, we, we, we ran hundred of com hundreds of combat missions in that, you know, six, seven month period. About midway through, we were, you know, 150 assault missions in and we would run rehearsals before every mission and i remember watching one of our rehearsals i kind of backed off the line let one of my junior officers take it i could tell everybody was just kind of mailing it in you know they're just kind of going through the motions and so i threw a monkey wrench into the final rehearsal which was we have this word we use kind of this doomsday word everybody's every unit has a different word ours is called avalanche but if you heard here over the radio anybody can call it avalanche 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 three times that means wherever you are, it would be better to be somewhere else. Like it, something is like the bomb is about to go off or something bad It's time to get out of there. So, I mean, if you were on a ship in the Persian Gulf and you heard that, it'd be better to jump overboard and figure out how you're going to swim to shore than stay on that ship. Okay. So it's not a word you use as a joke. So I had one of my explosive ordnance guys throw that word into the final rehearsal and nobody really reacted to it very well. Cause as I said, people were kind of going through the motion. So I pulled everybody in. I said, Hey, we're riding for a fall at this point. We're going through the motions. We need to get back to our focus and, and laser-like drive to do everything right, run it again. So we did it again, called out that word. Everybody did it right. That night, we hit an actual live target. I stayed out in the vehicles because I let my junior officer run the assault. And about 30 seconds into them entering the house, and it doesn't, this is a, you know, probably 10, 15 room, you know, two-story building, we can get through that house in absolutely shocking speed. So by 30 seconds in, we've probably controlled every part of that room and the fight is already over. All of a sudden, I hear my explosive guy call avalanche three times. 
So literally I have guys jumping off the roof and trying to barrel roll out, running out to the vehicles. I remember I popped out of the vehicle. I thought he had said it almost as a mistake because we'd rehearsed it. And by the time he got to me, it was like that scene on the Death Star where Darth Vader like lifted, you know, lifted the general up and was choking him. I mean, I literally had this guy almost off the ground. I was so mad and he's kind of yelling at me. And I was like, what's going on? He's like, that was not a mistake. Somebody used intelligence. Like we got, we kind of got booby trapped tonight. That entire house has explosives running through it. It's rigged to blow. This house is a widow maker. If our radio jammers, which we run on our vehicles, hadn't worked, that house could have blown and collapsed and probably killed 20 of my guys in a single shot. And so I'll never forget that, you know, how important practice and you're trying to make your practice perfect is to how you're going to perform when it counts. Wow. That is crazy and thank god that that is how that went down oh yeah no that, that would have been the worst night uh of loss you know certainly in my life but in almost our entire history wow uh work how th- this thing because you're so i'm not going to use the word spoiled spoiled by excellence spoiled by people who share the purpose it's all in there right and yeah. so when you work with companies now and you know, what do, what do you see as some of the perhaps fundamentals that if folks thought about it, you know, the question of how do we motivate people maybe wouldn't be so frightening. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say it. I think you said it in the question. It's the fundamentals. I, I think there's a lot of people that think you need to do something, you know, groundbreaking or, you know, thoughtful in a way that nobody's come up with it. You know, the big the big move that changes the entire industry. And while I'm not, I'm for that. And, and, and you're probably, uh, you, your ears are probably perking up because I know you know the story that it's going to lead to. I think doing the basics well is what every great organization does. I mean, you look at the great championship teams uh, in sports, rarely have you ever looked at any one of those teams and be like, oh, I mean, they run plays that nobody else runs. I mean, they're, they're doing things that nobody's done. I mean, every once in a while you'll have a, a player that does something exceptional. But, I mean, you think the you know Jordan-era Bulls didn't play good sound defense, didn't pass well, didn't recognize how to manage their time clock and communicate, put the right personnel against the right you know competitive player on the other side of the team. It's doing the basics really well. In, 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 in the SEAL teams, we, we, we make that super simple. We call it move, shoot, and communicate. If you can you know, move, and that, that doesn't just mean move. That means action. That means doing something. That means favoring action over inaction. Shooting, obviously, is making the ultimate decision, but basically doing the craft and the, the, you know, the pantheon of skill sets you need to be good at um, doing that well. And then communicate. And, and that's probably the most important one. If you can, you know, talk to each other effectively, you know, communicate what needs to be known in a moment, um, those are the teams that do really well. And, and, and the, the story that I know you're probably, you know, waiting on me is I, I, I talk a lot about this when I see a, a, an organization in, in, in person, and we, we can't really do it as easily on a podcast, but I, I have this concept that I call reach for an inch, which is just trying to get an inch better. In, in, instead of, you know, always trying to move the needle to another stratosphere, if you are just constantly looking for small opportunities of improvement, small place where you get better, can we, you know, streamline something that makes us more efficient? Can we, you know, we have six meetings a week, we only need two, let's go down to two, and it'll give us more time to, you know, actually get the work done. Um, 
you know, seek those inches out. I think those inches are where great teams, you know, constantly improve and keep moving forward. And and then I, I have a kind of physical thing I do with companies in, in person where they actually reach for that inch and I, I kind of trick them. But it, it really has become one of those, you know, kind of elemental or fundamental, you know, concepts in my mind that, you know, if I look, I come up with the next you know, I come up with the next Uber, the next uh, post-it pad. I'm not going to be unhappy about the fact that I could probably buy a ranch in Montana because of the financial windfall. If I don't, I'm still going to be grinding for every inch and calling for it as, as, as I move forward. And consequently, I'm probably going to be better than I was the day before. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, uh, with so many areas I want to go. One is just as you reflect, work on your own leadership development you know, kind yeah. of take out, looking at yourself, just some thoughts on uh, maybe earlier what you weren't doing, what you learned uh, maybe sooner than most. And I know all of that would be helpful for aspiring leaders out there. Sure. Yeah. Well, one, I think leadership is a practice. I, I, I think people ask that, 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 you know, kind of uh, everlasting question, are leaders made or are they born? And it's not a cop out. I, I truly, truly believe it's both. I do think the best leaders I've been around. And I think one of the reasons I had success in leadership across a lot of different planes, whether that was in sports or in, in the SEAL teams, is that there's some level of born or, I don't know, genetic nature, nurture, whatever it was that brought me to a certain personality trait where I, I had the goods to lead. And, and, and maybe it's just the desire to lead. I just wanted to be in charge. But then very much with that, I and the best leaders I know are students of leadership. They read books about great leaders. They read books about leadership. They read books about human performance or or you know they go to a class or a study. They're constantly kind of watering that skill set. Um and you know, staying open to dy- dynamic with it. I, I, I think uh I think I have some non-negotiables that that people that work for me would certainly know. Uh, the rest of it, I realize you you have to lead every person, you know, in some ways a little bit differently. So I, I was very aware of that. One of the real gifts, probably the greatest gift of my career in many ways, is the way it started. I mentioned when you get done with that training, you go to your first team. So my first SEAL team was SEAL Team 4 on the East Coast. They're the, the uh, even number SEAL teams are on the East Coast, the odd number teams on the West Coast. So I'm out in Virginia Beach, Virginia. My first two commanding officers, COs, which is basically like the CEO of a company, but far more powerful. I mean, a CEO of a Naval command is, is basically a God and has the ability to, you know, hire, fire, dock, pay, put you in jail. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a potent set of power constraints you or, or abilities you have as a leader in that environment. So you can, you can then create, you know, fantastic people or tyrants. I worked for my first two COs are without question over a 20 year career the best officer I ever worked for and the worst officer I ever worked for. And you want to talk about an incredible way to start your career as a young officer. I mean, I had a playbook on who I wanted to be and I had a playbook on who I definitely wasn't going to be. So it was like, I got handed over a platter, not like the, the, the bad officer was a, a pleasure to be around. It was miserable, but consequently I got this very early snapshot and, you know, two year experience really with both to see how to do that job and how not to do that job. And it was just a gift of gifts. And that, you know, the basics were the best leader I worked for. He, he, he served the team. He, he understood that the rank he had achieved was there to facilitate 
you know, greatness and, and performance for the, um, the, the team and, and the organization, the culture. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about his progression and moving forward and his greatness. It was how could he make all of us better and facilitate that happening. The other guy, it was all about him and getting promoted to the next rank and creating, you know, a little circle of sycophants that told him what he wanted to hear and beating up everybody else and, and being a bully and, and, you know, not living uh, any level of example. I mean, if he told you, you know, show up at seven in the morning, so inexplicably he'd be there at seven fifteen. I mean, you couldn't believe the stuff. I mean, it was just some of the most basic non-negotiable things. He did them all wrong and was, you know, a rel relatively distasteful person. Whereas the other guy, I remember walking by his office and as a young officer, you almost wanted to run by the, the, the CEO's office. He didn't get called in and tested and questioned. But I remember walking past his office at one point, he always had his door open. So he was available to the team. But I remember when he answered the phone, if you're a commanding officer of a team, you could answer the phone and say, what? And it wouldn't be out of line, right? I mean, you could literally have that mentality. I mean, very few people do that, but you, you could. He would answer the phone, uh, you know, commander, I'm not going to say his name. How can I help? How can I help? That, that's how he answered the phone. Senior person at the team. And you're just like, man, if that doesn't capture everything you need to know about him and what he was there to do, I, I don't know what else I could say. He, I, mean, I could tell a hundred stories about him for sure. Wow. So yeah. how, was there a process for this, you know, the very bad, you know, once those folks get in, you know, or, you know, we have like uh, performance reviews, people raid people. Yeah. Is there a way? How do they, how do they move it's that? It's tough in the military. The military has somewhat an archaic system, the way we kind of rank and evaluate people. And I say this, our, our organization gets it right way more than they get it wrong. I and mean, there's way more, really high performers, good people you want in charge than there are, you know, that one or two. I mean, I, if I asked, you know, 10 of my teammates named the three worst officers that you ever worked for, that guy's name would come up, you know, 100% of the time. And uh, I could probably name the other two. So it's a, it's a small number of people that really, you know, everybody didn't respect or like. And, you know, sadly, I think the reason they went forward is they didn't make an egregious mistake. You know, I mean, they, they stayed in shape. They kept their uniform looking good they never made a catastrophic unsurvivable error and sort of just kept their head down and kept plowing. And so there's a component to which, and the, the one I worked for that was the worst. He actually had an admiral that I learned later that had somewhat protected him for his entire career. So, you know, that happens too. It, it as I was saying, it's, it's way rarer than, um, you know, fortunately it's, it's rarer than it is, uh, uh, you, you know, normal. Yeah, I could see that. I see that. Okay. I am really curious. You were such an avid reader. So was writing a book, did you just know you had to write a book? Did someone suggest you write the books? And, and uh, so I'm just curious about your role as an author and what you learned yeah. and what that's meant to you. Yeah, no, I didn't have a, a major, Hey, I'm going to be an author. I want to write a book, but I also don't think it was ever, you know, kind of off the table. I love to write. And I actually, um, I, uh, maybe I'll talk about later. One of the things I think I've, I, I think I've wasted too much time not writing more. So I'm uh, one of my, one of my getting into this year is to write a lot more because I do enjoy it. I think there's a great, you know, ability to communicate through, you know, written, written text and, and what you put down on paper. Um, I, I really kind of got to a point where there weren't a lot of sealed books. I mean, now you, you know, you walk into a, a military um, section of a bookstore and there's, you know, 200 books from all the different, you know, services and folks that have fought in this modern war. And then you look at warfare across history, and there's always been a handful of people that have written about it and shared their stories. And, 
you know, some of it has been very chest beating and look at me and I killed this many people and blah, 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 blah. And I, I wanted to write something very much of the higher ideals, the thing as I learned and how I was affected by it, and what we believe in and why we do what we do. And so I, I tried to take on that, you know, mantle in, in writing both my books. Um, but no, it was just a natural growth out of, as you said, I love to read and I kind of felt like I got to a point where I had something to say. And, and then that, that's where that came from. I really appreciated reading them both. And I think the idea of just the purpose behind it and, you know, we don't want to have to go to war, but there are things that are worth going to war for. And I just, I I really appreciated it because I think it's, um, you know, it's kind of easy to make blanket judgments. I think that, um, but you gotta, you gotta kind of look long and hard, you know, and and, and we never want to do it, but sometimes it's, it's really the right thing. The, um, and I also think there's just there's just a lot of lessons and things that come out of that experience that are so, you know, stovepiped into only. I mean, look, I, I could if I wrote, you know, 50 books on war, psychologically, the emotion of it, the, the feeling of it and the reality of it, you still couldn't get it perfectly right. And, 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 and look, even if you did, somebody that hasn't been wouldn't. No, I mean, you would you would pull back a curtain a bit, but, you know, only somebody that served and has been in a gunfight has been amongst teammates in that level of chaos and intensity and, and um, you know, savagery many times will really know what it, it's like. And a lot of tremendous lessons are born of that. And so for me, it was like, man, if we don't share some of the things we learned, it feels like we've got this tre- treasure trove of leadership and teamwork and you know, discipline and focus and kind of commitment to something that if you don't share it, you feel like you're almost keeping something hidden that'd be worth it for other people. So that there was, I felt a little bit of a responsibility there, but also making sure I did it, you know, honorably and not putting people in harm's way by not talking too much about specifics of, of the actual mission sets. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be learned there and shared. And I, I think it's why speaking of the corporate world, I get a lot of you know, good feedback. We're like, wow, that, that really does make sense. And that it translates. I mean, people will say all the time when I, I finish speech, you know what, well, you know, our business obviously isn't war. And so it's not the same. And I, I, I agree that's true, but the principles all work across the different, um, you know, planes and the different type businesses and, and kind of uh, systems. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Just a quick segue. I don't think you ever thought you'd be a movie star. So what was that experience like? And I had that whole thing happened and it's yeah. i'm not a big shoot 'em up kind of person but i watched and i was like wow it was pretty intense yeah it was intense uh you know we were all the, the guys that were in the movie were at the training compounds so that's when we were running you know training for the seals so that means you're in what's called shore duty for us you have sea duty which is when you're kind of getting combat ready and going on deployment shore duties when you're back home in a job where you're not going to deploy and those are small little windows of time but they're great windows of time because you get to be with family and kind of recover and reload for the next round but so we were at the training center the film company that ended up making the movie had come in to really just do some commercials and some footage to kind of get our marketing together you know we'd never we didn't have a website we didn't have a way to market to young people and you know the information world was just moving forward at a time where it's like hey we're the quiet professionals and we don't advertise the nature of our work. Yeah, that's true. But you're also not going to get anybody to come do this job if they don't know it exists. So we're trying to figure out how to, you know, somewhat market, but also do it, you know, appropriately and, and uh, humbly. And and so they, they were coming to do that and they did a bunch of interviews with um, 
myself, the you know tall chief Dave, who's in the movies, one of my best friends, uh, you know, and frame, favorite teammates. They just they just did interviews on the beach asking us about what we believe in, you know, why we did the job, why we became a SEAL, what we think of, you know, combat experiences and things like that. And something about those interviews were so powerful to that film company when they got the idea for the movie. After those video uh, interviews, they said, I think it's going to be easier to teach SEALs to act than actors to become SEALs if we want to get this right and do it authentically. And so they asked us to do it. Everybody said no to a man. Everyone said no. <laughs> and, and, um, and then, you know, the military, they'll, they'll give you orders, not invitations. So they eventually said, you know, we're going to do it, but we want to have the right guys do it. But it was really a conversation with Chief Dave, my, you know, my teammate and buddy of mine, he's a master chief now. He's, he, I think he just recently retired, but phenomenal, phenomenal human being. And I remember after the, the film company really kind of tried to put the hard sell on us and we weren't getting paid. I mean, we got paid Navy pay and three squares of three square meals a day. And it was like being on orders to do any other job, which was fine. None of us want to try and capitalize on the tribe. You know, that wasn't our job. It was just to represent the community authentically. But I remember Dave and I got coffee when it was kind of close to decision time. And it, he, he made an interesting comment where he turned to me. He's like, you know, sir, the one thing that worries me is we've all said no everyone they've asked are some of our best guys. Like I, I know you as a leader, I know your reputation as a warfighter, and, and how much the guys respect you. I would want you to represent us. And, you know, if we don't do it, and of course I said in absolute mirror honesty, I would think the exact same about him. I mean, he's as good an enlisted leader as I've ever been around. And so you're like, yeah, you want you, him represent the community. He said, you know, if we say no, the three worst guys in our community that probably already have their Facebook page built trying to become actors are going to say yes. And they're going to make us look ridiculous. And so uh, that actually had a tremendous amount of weight with me. And so we, 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 we asked the film company if we did it, if we could one have veto power on, you know, we're not going to do stupid things that don't happen on the battlefield. We can't give a playbook to Al Qaeda and uh, we want it to pay respect to, you know, those real events that have happened in our history that are worth highlighting. And they they honored every minute of that. As far as the making of the movie, I definitely didn't finish and want to become an actor. I mean, it's it's a different <laughs> it's a different business. I mean, I, I one I tip my hat in unbelievable respect to the greats, you know, the top the top tier of the acting world on how they can generate that emotion and make you feel things and do it now that i filmed one you know you film every scene 10 times i mean you gotta you know move the cameras <laughs> here and move them over there and take an hour break and oh we lost the light it's gotta go tomorrow and those people doing some of those intense scenes that probably do them multiple times I, I just it's amazing to me that they can find that within themselves to do it so there's a real art and craft there but for me, it was too much waiting around. <laughs> just like you wait around constantly for, you know, a scene to get set up, cameras to get loaded, you know, the light to be right. Then you go really fast and then you're like waiting around again. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, you know, not trade my salary with some of the, the Hollywood elite, but I, I wouldn't want to earn, I wouldn't want to, you know, take the time to get that good at it to do it. It didn't, it didn't make me want to do a lot more. Yeah. That's so yeah. crazy. I just thought that was so, I know, you know, you, you did it on purpose, but it, it does, when you look at it, it must seem like kind of fun, like, you know, to have yeah. that whole thing captured. Yeah. There's, there's parts of it that definitely are. Yeah. Um, it's just more work than I realized. You know, you, I yeah. just kind of think you'd be like, oh, you know, probably get catering brought to you, driven over to your spot, and you're like, you know, air-conditioned little uh, trailer. And, and it's, I mean, I'm sure there's 
people at the level that have that, but, but it, it's work. It's work. And everybody's working hard. And I, the thing I think we enjoyed about the most is, you know, the guys that were holding the cameras, and the lighting and the sound and, you know, running the like, you know, grunt work. We really got along with those guys and treat them well. And they're like, man, this is like no movie you've ever been on. I mean, usually you guys in front of the uh, cameras, you, you're called talent. You know, the people that are on screen are called talent. And they kind of joked about how it's like, you know, babies that you just need to feed and take care of. And I'm sure, I'm sure plenty of plenty of actors are really great to the whole cast and crew. And I bet you wouldn't have a, a long-standing career if you didn't. But uh, you could tell they like being with us because we we pick up our end of the you know boat and make sure we're helping them too. So that was fun. Oh, I love it. I love it. Look, I, we could go on and on. So we'll have you back to talk a little more on the leadership topic. Sure. Um, but I'll, I'll take us to a wrap. You know, um, assuming you are exactly where you are now. Or any regrets or do-overs? I feel super blessed that that the answer is pretty much no. I mean, if you if you told me I could go back and do anything, it would be personal relationships that I probably could have done better. But but I I feel like I treated people with tremendous respect, always tried to, you know, help them meet their best. There's people that aren't made for that job and aren't performing at the highest level, and then you know, you got to be relatively harsh and pitiless to make sure, you know, you're cutting that, you know, I guess kind of like that GE, you know, cutting off that bottom 10%. So you're getting the best performers. So I don't know, there's probably some of those things I could have done better. And, um, you know, I hope I thanked everyone that ever worked with me for me. And, and in my mind, I worked for, uh, you know, thanking them for their time. Um, but I didn't have any majors. I, I feel very, very lucky that I don't have any boy, I, I would, you know, I'm going to think till the day I die, I wish I got that one right. Yeah, that's but, awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. What about your growth mindset? What's an area of growth that you have for yourself? I think uh, it's taken me longer than it should have leaving the military. I'm a pretty disciplined person. I am not an organized person. And so it's very easy for me to, um, as if I pick uh, something that I sink my teeth into, I go all in and I'll go hard and be disciplined and focused on it. Um, there's just a lot of things to do in my life right now. I got kiddos, I got, you know, a bride and, and, and a marriage that I'm always trying to water and take care of. And then, you know, paying the bills and then still wanting to be purposeful in my, my work life and running all that has proven significantly more complex than being a SEAL. I mean, the thing that was, I missed from the military was honestly the simplicity. I mean, you knew what time you're getting up in the morning, what time you drag a razor across your face, what time I had coffee, what time I worked out, what time we go to do this training, day ends, go home, you know, spend time, uh, spend time with my bride and get ready to do it again the next day and, and then go to your job. It was actually very, very simple. <laughs> and I found regular life is far more complex and I could be a lot more organized um, yeah. at kind of attacking that. I, I think I, I, I think I hate the idea of not, you know, maximizing potential and, and, and not you know, giving everything I have. And I think just my lack of, in some ways, organization is probably, I don't know, I need a personal assistant or something to help me. Yeah, we can solve for that. We can solve for that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You've shared so much as you've listened to yourself. Do you have a top takeaway um, from all you've shared? You know, I love the idea just because I think it's a simple concept, but one that pays huge dividends, the reach for an inch. I mean, I just, I, I really like the idea of, of the burden that we, so many people seem to put on themselves. They believe greatness comes from, 
you know, just either inspiration or one big act or, you know, one big, I'm working towards greatness. And I've found it's lots of little steps that tend to lead towards great performances and great, great opportunities. So I'd probably, uh, I'd probably focus on that one, but boy, I think we've, I think we've uncovered a couple of gems. Oh, for sure. And lastly, Mark, you know, what was it like for you to share your journey today? Oh, I enjoy. I mean, you know, you and I met, you know, only briefly right after that that event that we uh, we got to spend time together at. And I don't know I, if if I've done. I think one thing pretty well, or at least have a good sense of. I, I I tend to be able to find people that are authentic and actually mean what they say and care about what they're doing. And so I've had a lot of people that you know want to talk. That I don't know. I get the sense it's 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 less about you know, wanting to actually learn and more about what they can produce. It was very obvious. You are the real thing. You care and actually want these lessons to, you know, resonate and connect with people and make them better and, and, and constantly looking to improve. And so uh, I was just delighted to get a chance to spend time with you. And it's always fun because stories pop up in my mind that I, 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 hadn't remembered or hadn't thought of. And, and uh, it's a lot of fun to dig into the, the recesses and kind of bring it back. Well, Rourke, thank you. Thank you for your courage to serve, putting your life on the line for what you believe is worth dying for, and the courage to be who you are. I'm so grateful for the many insights, the learnings, how you live and lead so meaningfully. And I know people of all ages have many gems to take away. So if I can be a teeny weeny bit helpful to you, please let me know. Uh, You, my friend, are an inspiring part of the solution. You're helping all of us to be safe, seen, and heard, and are true and very best selves. You take good care. I will. Thank you. Ah, folks. Amazing. Of course, my thought for the week is reach for an inch. Okay. And that is a wrap folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify works voice, reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program. 
so they say it skillfully too. 